Hi, good morning. Well, I wanted to say, it was very lovely of uh, you guys to sing me happy birthday this morning. I need to point out, though, there are a couple of more birthdays that happened this week. I see Johnny sitting over there, who I discovered shares my birthday. We have the same birthday. And Troy, his birthday is the day before mine. So we had like a big week for birthdays this week in church. So this morning, as you're out sharing well wishes, be sure to remember them as well. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Graham. I'm the teaching pastor here at Elam Chapel. And welcome to to those of you who are joining us online. I'm so glad that you're here as well. Uh, Apologies in advance. I'm fighting a bit of a head cold. So if I sound funny, that's what's going on. It's, uh, It's not Whitney's fault this time. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get into the Bible. God, thanks for today. Thanks for a new week. Thanks that we can join together to worship you and to hear from your word. We pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds. I pray that you would anoint my lips to speak your words and that your word would reap a harvest today, Lord, in our hearts and in our lives, that we'd be more like you. In your name we pray. Amen. So last week we started a new series. We're working through the two letters of Peter in the New Testament. This week we're going to keep going with that in the second chapter of 1 Peter. Now, if you have your Bibles with me, I would invite you to turn to 2 Peter. Or if you have your phone, you know, that's great too. No, no issues with that. Now, there is a problem though. Chapter 2 of 1 Peter begins with the word, therefore. Which is a bit of a problem for teaching in this week-to-week format because that word tells us that the context is extremely important. Therefore is a connecting word. What Peter is about to say builds directly off of what he had just finished saying. And nobody remembers what he said last week. Let's be real, right? So let's quickly remind ourselves what was going on so far in this letter. Peter is writing to a group of churches in Asia Minor which are composed of Gentile believers. He's going to have lots of encouragement and exhortation for them, but he doesn't start with that. He starts with praising God and reminding them of the finished work that Jesus has accomplished. That their effort comes in light of God's victory. He also reminds them of the great reward waiting in the next life. And like the book of James, reminds them that sufferings and trials produce character and virtue in their lives. As a result, Peter calls them to live holy lives. Holy means separate, set apart, or different. He is calling them to live the way that God commands, despite the pressures of the culture that they find themselves in. He reminds them that the essence of this call is to love one another, and that God's word, the foundation of our lives, isn't some temporary thing. Even human lives are fleeting compared to God's Word. So let's read chapter 2, and then we'll see what God has to say to us. I think in the interest of really working that therefore, I'll start by reading the last few verses of chapter 1, and then go straight in. So I'll start at verse 22 of chapter 1. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for one another... Uh, love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusted him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Chapter 2. 
The first few verses of chapter 2 wrap up Peter's call to holiness that he was making in the first chapter, but they highlight something new that hadn't come up until then. Peter highlights the attitude of the heart and how we come to the Word of God. He says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I hope you're here today without deceit in your heart. I hope you're here without envy or slander. We've come to hear the word of God, but sometimes our own stuff can get in the way. Oh, yeah, that's gross. Sometimes we're distracted by our own faces sometimes. Sometimes we're distracted. There are all kinds of pressures for life that can weigh us down and keep us thinking about other things. Sometimes it's because we're offended. Things happen. Church is full of very human people. Maybe you can't stop thinking about something that someone said or did just this morning or earlier in the week. Maybe it was something I said or did. That offense can get in the way of our ability to hear God. There are echoes here, I don't know if you noticed, of Jesus' parable of the sower with the different kinds of soil and the weeds and the birds. But I want to be clear that this is not an excuse to be offensive and get away with it. If I have offended you, I am sorry. Putting our offenses, to side to, putting our offenses aside in order to worship and hear from God is not an excuse to cause offense. We don't get to hold that over each other like some sort of spiritual club. But for our own sakes, uh, because, we don't, uh, because we want to receive the pure spiritual milk, as Peter says, we come together across all sorts of lines from different ethnic backgrounds and economic backgrounds and political backgrounds, and we gather around the Word because the Word of God is life. Taste and see that the Lord is good. As we move into verse 4, we revisit one of the themes that we saw last week. Remember, 1 Peter is written to Christians who are Gentiles. In fact, these were almost certainly first-generation Christians. Their parents would have been pagans because Christianity, frankly, hadn't existed. So these people were not part of Israel. They were not part of God's chosen people. They were not part of the covenants, and a lot of the Old Testament imagery would be new to them, at least in context. But Peter does something amazing, and we saw this a little bit last week. He applies Old Testament covenant imagery to these Gentile Christians. Last week, we saw the image of a people sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. Glad we're not doing that in church today. In this chapter, Peter is using the image of the temple and of the priesthood. In verse 5, he says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, temple, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The temple in the Old Testament was, well, important would be an understatement. It was the center of Israel's life. The feasts and festivals of the temple marked the important delineations of the calendar. The offerings of the temple constituted an important portion of all the economic activity of the nation. 
But most of all, the temple housed God's spirit. God, who created the universe, who cannot be contained by any structure built by human hands, somehow, in some way, in his goodness and mercy, had chosen that place to house his special presence. The Holy of Holies literally could not be entered except once a year, and even then, they had to do extensive purification rituals. And priests would die if they didn't. Israel would gather from all across the land to offer sacrifice and praise from outside the heavy curtain, just so that they could be near God's presence. But then something incredible happened. When Jesus died, we read in Matthew 27 that the curtain or veil in the temple was torn in two. It was as if the Spirit of God said, I'm done with this place, I have a new home, and I'm out of here. Paul also uses the imagery of the temple when writing to New Testament believers. We read in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? This is what Peter is getting at. You are the new temple of God. God's spirit lives in you if you profess Christ as Savior and Lord. But not only that, Peter also uses the imagery of the priesthood. And this is deeply significant in the history of Israel. In fact, a priesthood is what all of Israel was originally called to be. In Exodus 19, we read... Now, if you obey me fully, this is God speaking, and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, Israel couldn't or wouldn't do it. They backed away from what God had offered. Instead, the Levites, one of the tribes, became the priests, and the rest of the nation chose instead to serve more distantly. But again, if the temple is central to Israel's life and identity, the priesthood are the agents of that life and identity. And look at what Peter says about the Gentile Christians in verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You were once on the outside, but now you're included. You were once alone, but now God is with you. You were lost, but now you were found. You were blind, but now you see. What great gifts God has given us, a people who didn't deserve it and didn't belong. God has done great things for us. And like we saw last week, Peter wants to keep our focus here on what God has already done, the victory that God has already won before moving to our part. Peter has more to say about how we must live in response, starting in verse 11. There's so much in these verses, and I'd love to reread all of it, but I'm trying to be conscious of the time because I'm told there's a sports ball game today. 
But let's at least reread verses 11 and 12. They'll give us the main idea. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. As we saw last week, Peter makes his call to holiness in light of God's victory. Here, we get to see a window into the why of that call. Peter calls us to live good and holy and righteous lives for two reasons. The first is in verse 11. Sinful desires which wage war against your soul. It is good for you to not sin. Like, like it's good for you. It, it's to your benefit. Sin is destructive and not only in a social sense. Not just because of the consequences of sin to those around you or the consequences to what those around you would think of you. If no one ever finds out, if it stays secret forever, sin will still have damaged you. It will still set you back. But the second reason is a little easier for us to grasp. Damage to your soul is sort of ethereal, right? It's sort of conceptual. It can be hard to tell what that damage is, hard to conceptualize what those consequences might be. But Peter's second reason for avoiding sin is much more concrete, much more understandable. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Peter is saying that by doing good, we are witnesses of Christ in the world. By showing love and kindness and compassion, by dealing justly and fairly, that is how we are salt and light. That when people see that, that is what will make them turn to God. Can I just say how much this series is already touching again on what we spent all of January talking about? the desperate need for belonging, for growth, for participation. It's just, it's always cool to me to see the Bible echoing itself. And the Bible really does echo this call in particular. Romans 2.4 tells us that it is the goodness of God which leads us to repentance. And Jesus, of course, is the biggest voice of all. In John 13.35, we read, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The way that we conduct ourselves in our day-to-day -day lives is the biggest witness that we can provide. Like, think about that guy at work, or a woman, it could be either. That person who's an absolute crank. They're unpleasant, unkind, they're just not a nice person to be around. And imagine that one day they start talking about their church. I don't know about you, but my reaction to that would be something like, if you're the kind of person that church makes, I don't want anything to do with it. It's worth thinking about. But what's interesting to me is that Peter doesn't stop there. He adds to this also the call to be good workers, to be productive, to work hard. That this is not only part of our witness to the world, but part of how we glorify God. Look at verse 18 and remember that Peter has just called, I think it was in verse 16, that we should all be God's slaves. So when he addresses verse 18 to slaves, there's a solid argument that he's talking to everyone. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. 
Not only those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. This sounds very much like Paul's admonition to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 5 and 8. 5 to 8, where we read, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And I want to quickly say that this is not the Bible endorsing slavery. Slavery was the fact of the day. And the Bible is not describing a plan for social change. It is addressing things as they currently existed in that day. However, the Bible is one of the main reasons why slavery was ended, especially the little book of Philemon, if you're interested in looking more into this. But back to our point. Peter and Paul are saying that as we work, we are witnessing the excellence and justice that we exercise in our work lives are a credit to God. This can be expanded to every area of life. And Paul says as much in his letter to the Colossians. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. That's a lot. Not only do we have to resist sin, but we also have to carry the weight of being witnesses for Christ every moment of every day. And not just in church, but at work, on the street, with our families, all the time. That's a lot. Amen? Feels like a lot. And it's almost like Peter hears our objection. Because Peter finishes this section having just talked about slaves submitting to bad masters and suffering for God with these words. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness." By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Perspective is good. It's hard, but it's good. Jesus suffered far more and unjustly. At least when we suffer, we know that we have sin and wrongdoing, and we can at least conceptually agree that we deserve to be punished for it, even if the thing that we're suffering through doesn't seem to connect. Jesus didn't even have that, because he had no sin. Peter finishes this section and this call to live holy lives by, you guessed it, calling us back to Jesus and reminding us of what he has done. It's like a sandwich. Peter starts with the great things that God has accomplished on our behalf. And then in light of that victory, he calls us to live God's way. But he finishes by reminding us of the example that we are following and the end to which we have been called. You can do this. We can do this because we have Jesus. 
Peter uses this passage and the reference to Jesus as inspiration, as an example for us to follow as we suffer in life. But as we close, I want to call us back to Jesus using this same imagery to remind us of what Jesus has done for us. We have sinned. We have separated ourselves from God and we have no hope of restoring our relationship with God on our own. But Jesus paid that penalty. God put on flesh and became one of us in order to make a way and to call us back to himself. If today you need to answer that call, if today you need to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, I invite you to come pray with us. Myself and some volunteers will be here at the front after the last song, and we would love to pray with you as you start your journey with God. Let's pray to finish, and the worship team will come back. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would be at work in us. We pray that we would remember these words as we go about our week. We pray that you would change us to make us more like you, more like your son. And that we would live in the light of your victory. That we would live wholly different lives because of what you've done, not because of our own effort. In your name we pray. Amen.